Hey, TGC podcast listeners. Today's episode features a keynote message from TGC's 2023 conference. You can also access more TGC 23 conference media and micro-event sessions in the meantime, right after this episode. Simply visit tgc23.org watch or click the link in the show notes. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash N-E-X-T. That's acts29.com slash next. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a keynote message from David Platt, originally given at TGC's 2023 conference. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, we're actually going to begin there and then end in Exodus 40. While you're turning, I would just say I'm totally undeserving of this honor of preaching at this conference. Yet in God's providence, I am really thankful for specifically being assigned this topic, God's presence in the wilderness. Without going into details, even since I've been here this week, there are been things in my life and the lives of people really close to me that have reminded me how hard and full of hurt that this wilderness of a fallen world can be. And I've needed the reminder in my own heart that Almighty God is with me in the wilderness. And I trust I'm not alone in needing that reminder. I look out across this room, I can only imagine all the trials that you were walking through in the wilderness of this world. And I I hope to remind you in these final moments we have together before we scatter that Almighty God is with you. So I got a lot of ground to cover. So I'm gonna dive in to this contention I wanna make from the end of the book of Exodus. So here it is, I'm gonna put it on the screen. One of our greatest needs today, if not our greatest need, is extraordinary prayer for the fullness of God's presence among his people. I wanna contend from this text that one of our greatest needs today, if not our greatest need, is extraordinary prayer for the fullness of God's presence among his people in our lives, our families, our churches, and in the broader church together. So travel with me to a Sunday a few months ago in our church family in Metro Washington, D.C. After extended prayer and fasting leading up to that Sunday, we decided to shorten the sermon just a little bit so we could have some extra time to respond to God's word in prayer. And when I say prayer, I'm referring to all that prayer involves. We use the acrostic pray 
and our church family for P, praising God, R, repenting of sin, A, asking for things in our lives and others' lives, and Y, yielding our lives to God. And we said, let's do all the above. Let God's word lead you to praise him in this time through any biblical posture of praise, sitting, standing, kneeling, lifting your hands, lying prostrate before God, singing, shouting, being silent. Let God's word lead you to confess your sin to him and to each other. Let God's word lead you to ask for God's help in your life and intercede for God's help in others' lives. And let God's word lead you to surrender your life and your family and our church family to him in a fresh way in response to his words. So I finished the sermon and we prayed. And our 11 o'clock service on Sunday usually ends around 12.30, but not that day. We were still going strong around four o'clock that afternoon, which I know is not unusual for other church traditions and particularly many of our brothers and sisters around the world, but it was something I'd never experienced before in my life on a Sunday in the church I've been a part of. People were worshiping and confessing sin and interceding for each other, praying for healing and help from God. And there were multiple times when I started to close things out, but this or that would happen, we would keep going until about four o'clock when I sensed it was time. We concluded, we left, I went home exhausted. I actually had an opportunity to sleep in a little extra the next morning, but I woke up really early. The only way I could describe it is a holy nudge to get out of bed, so I did and spent time with the Lord. And at the end of that time, the thought came to my mind, I wonder if we should call our people to gather again tonight just to pray. So I called a couple of our pastors. I said, what do you guys think? As we talked and prayed about it, we thought, why not? We'll invite people to come. If 10 people show up, we'll pray with 10 people and that will be awesome. If more than 10 people show up, that will also be awesome. Awesome or awesome, let's do this. So we just sent out an email. Hey, we're gonna gather together tonight at 7.30 to pray. And a lot more people than 10 showed up that night and we had no plan beyond, let's start with this song. And then the word of God and the spirit of God led us. It got to about 10.30 and I'm looking around, I'm thinking most of these people I think have to work tomorrow. And so I said, I think we need to draw this to a close, but I think we also need to gather again tomorrow night. And so we did the next night and the next night and the next night, spending hours upon hours together as a church in a prayer, in prayer, in a way no one had planned. And God answered. We saw people coming to Christ, people we'd pray for on one night who would come to Christ on another night. We saw people confessing sin. I remember one night early on we were, uh, we were just spending time confessing sin. One brother stood in front of everybody else and began to confess an addiction he had in his life. We gathered around and prayed for him. And then I just said, who else in this room needs to confess addiction? And people stood up all across the room and we gathered around all kinds of people praying over those who are struggling with addiction. People confessing adultery, multiple people, one spouse turning to another in these gatherings, confessing adultery to them, confessing all kinds of infatuation with money, infatuation with work, idolatry of possessions, Infatuation with our image, our reputation, confession of prejudice and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. People confessing struggles. I remember one night a, a girl was sharing just part of her testimony 
involved a time in her life when she struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts. And as she shared that, just almost in passing, I stopped her, I said, I just wanna pause before you go on. I just, I want us to have some time to pray for people who are struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts. And I know this would be a bold thing to do in this room, but if you struggle with depression or suicidal thoughts, I wanna ask you to stand and we're gonna gather around, we're gonna pray for you. And people stood all across that room. We gathered around and prayed for them. We saw people come who had shared They were planning that day to take their lives. Somebody invited them to come to this gathering tonight and they found renewed hope in Jesus. God literally saved people's lives through these gatherings. Our teenagers, young adults were speaking what I would just describe as spirit-prompted speech over their peers, our whole church family in ways that left me stunned. We witnessed all sorts of people prayerfully saying, I believe God may be leading me to go to the unreached. Again, all of this in a way nobody had planned. We just gave space for people to pray in the presence of God. One night, it was, it was Wednesday night, we were praying for marriages and a brother was sharing about how the night before he had led someone to Jesus whose marriage was struggling. And as he was sharing, the thought came to my mind, seemingly out of nowhere, I think I need to give an invitation for people to trust in Jesus for salvation. It was like 9.30 at night. And so the next thought that came to my mind is, Surely everybody here is a Christian. It's 9.30 at night at a prayer gathering. But then the next thought was, where does it say that in the word? Everyone who comes to prayer gatherings at 9.30 shall be saved. It's not in there. So I said, okay, I I think, so I just stood stood and I, I had this sense, like, I think I need to invite people to come down to the front if they want to trust in Jesus. So I shared the gospel. Of course, we've been praying through the gospel the whole night, made the gospel explicit, invited people to trust in Jesus. If you'd be willing to trust in Jesus, if you want to, I wanna invite you to come down here to the front. And we waited for a moment. And then this young adult, he's in his 20s, stepped out. He ran down. And his grandmother on the other side of the room came down to meet him. And then this person came, and this person came, and this person came. Now, step back a little bit. The next night, uh, a girl, a young, one of our young adults named uh, 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 Victoria from Bolivia, Victoria was sharing her story, but as part of her story, she said, a couple of nights ago, we were praying. So this is gonna be confusing a little bit. A couple of nights before, we'd been praying for parents who didn't know Christ because we had just seen a 92-year-old woman come to faith in Christ. It was like, how many of you have parents who who are just been resistant to the gospel for years? Let's press in and pray for them. Well, Victoria had stood, we'd prayed for her mom as well as many other people. Well, she invited her mom to come to these prayer gatherings. I didn't know this. And on that Wednesday night, as this guy is talking about marriages and this person who he just led to Christ, Victoria sees her mom walk in at 9.30. And Victoria, when she sees her unsaved mom walk into this prayer gathering at 9.30, she starts praying, God, please lead David to give an invitation with the gospel and invite people to come down in front. So she's praying that, I'm now thinking that, and you'll never guess who comes down to the front. Victoria's mom. So anyway, all that to say, I could go on with story after story, but this is not about the church I pastor. This is about all of us together, brothers and sisters. One of our greatest needs, if not our greatest need today, is extraordinary prayer. 
in our lives, in our families, in our churches, in our conferences, for the fullness of God's presence among us, for a fresh outpouring of God's Holy Spirit upon us. And as soon as I say that, I know there are theological antennas going off in many minds. Like, don't we already have the fullness of the Spirit in us? And the Holy Spirit moves in different ways. You know, it doesn't always look like this or that. And my purpose is not to do a deep dive into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And yes, the myriad ways God works by His Spirit in our lives and our church. But would you just look with me at Exodus 25 through 40, just humbly and honestly with open minds and open hearts. Look at Exodus 25. So right after the covenant was confirmed that Ligon so gloriously walked us through last night, God gives instructions to His people for the construction of the tabernacle. Why? Look at verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. You see it? God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. I would argue because the greatest need among God's people is the fullness of God's presence in their midst. They need God with them. And thus begins instructions for the tabernacle. They go through chapter 31, after which Moses comes down from the mountain to see what Andrew so gloriously walked us through as God's people rebelled against him. And Moses stood in the gap as a mediator for them, which then leads, so now turn with me to Exodus 33, to these words specifically from God to Moses. Look at Exodus 33, verse one. The Lord said to Moses, depart, Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." Did you catch that? God just said, I'm gonna give you the land I promised to you, go and take it. But he drops the bomb, I will not go up among you. The Hebrew here is the same as what we just read in Exodus 25, eight. The difference is there God says, I will dwell among you. Now God's saying, I will not dwell among you. So Moses is now faced with the prospect of having the promises of God without the presence of God. What would we do if we were in his shoes? Let us not be too quick to answer. Can I remind us, brothers and sisters, that this is precisely the brand of Christianity that has been sold to so many people in our culture today. Multitudes of people who've prayed a prayer, made a decision, call themselves Christians, but do not actually want God to be Lord of their lives. People who want to live however they want on earth and then expect to go to heaven. It's blasphemy. You won't go to heaven if you don't want God. Contrary to popular evangelistic invitations, we don't come to Christ ultimately to get gifts, forgiveness, heaven, abundant life. No, you come to Christ to get God and all his gifts flow from him and his presence. Or, so now take this a step deeper for us as church leaders. Are we not all tempted in our day-to-day -day lives and ministries to do the work of God apart from the power of the presence of God? Evident in how little we pray. Let's be honest with each other, brothers and sisters. We have created a whole host of means and methods for doing ministry today that we can carry on with little, if any, help at all from the Holy Spirit. 
We don't have to fast and pray for our ministries to flourish. We have marketing and social media for that. It is possible, dangerously possible, for you and I to carry on the machinery and activity of the churches we lead. It can even be smooth, even successful in our eyes and never notice that we're doing it all in our flesh. What if the greatest barrier to the spread of the gospel today is not the self-indulgent immorality of our culture, but the self-sufficient mentality in our churches? So, what does Moses do when faced with the prospect of doing God's work apart from God's presence? He goes in the tent of meeting, verses 7 through 11, and he prays. Dump down to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Do you see why Moses is praying like this? So if you're taking notes, maybe write these down. Four reasons why we need extraordinary prayer for the fullness of God's presence among his people. One, because we have an assignment we cannot fulfill. See what's happening here. Moses knows he is not able to do what God is calling him to do. He cannot lead God's people into the promised land apart from the presence of God. It's the obvious truth that John Edward, Jonathan Edwards put this way, only God is able to do the work of God. Which is why Edwards said, it is the will of God that when he has something very great to accomplish for his church, it will be preceded by the extraordinary prayers of his people. Brothers and sisters, look at our culture, at the redefinition, not just of precious institutions in marriage and family, but people's very identities as image bearers of God. Look at the tensions over race and politics, the polarization and demonization of people at every turn. Look at the onslaught of secular thought infiltrating every facet of our lives and overtaking the next generation. Not to mention the three billion people among the nations who've never even heard the gospel. Not to mention all the challenges we face in our personal lives and families and parenting amidst the wilderness of this world, amidst depression and anxiety and drugs and addiction and suicide. Do we really think we can combat all of that with our ingenuity and our creativity, with our education and our expertise, with our work and our effort? No. God, deliver us from damning dependence on ourselves. We cannot preach, we cannot counsel, we cannot evangelize, we cannot shepherd our churches or our homes. We cannot reach the next generation and the nations in our own power. We need the power of God, which means we need to fall on our faces and pray. During that one week in our church family, God did more to awaken hearts than we ever could have planned or programmed ourselves. Do we believe this? Do you believe you can accomplish more in the next month in the power of the Holy Spirit than you can in your own power over the entire duration of your life in ministry? If so, then pray for this. We have been given an assignment we cannot fulfill from God, in our lives, families, the church, the world around us, we need the fullness of his presence, which leads to the second reason we need extraordinary prayer because we have a privilege we cannot forsake. So I skipped over this. Let's back up for a minute in the text 
and make sure we realize where Moses is right now. Picture this scene starting in verse 7. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speak to his, speaks to his friend. Is that language not stunning? Yahweh speaking with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Friends with the I am. And just picture the scene as Moses starts his journey toward the tent and word gets around. Everybody stands in front of their tent and watches in silent awe as this man goes into a tent. A cloud rests over that tent and everybody is standing and worshipful awe because there is a man who is meeting with God right now. Uh, this is one of those places we just, we can't leave this in the Old Testament. Like, as awesome as that scene is, isn't it good that we've not gathered together to watch one person go into the tent? There goes John Piper. Wow. John is meeting with God. No. For all who are in Christ, you have access anytime, anywhere to the presence of Yahweh. You don't even have to go anywhere. You're the tent. <laughs> His presence dwells inside of you. You have communion with God anytime, anywhere with the almighty Yahweh. So why would we not spend extraordinary time in prayer? We have an open invitation to meet with, to be with God. So let us belong with God when we're alone and when we're together. And when we come together, let's realize who we're meeting with. Look at all the people throughout the Old Testament who met with God, who didn't even have the privileges that we enjoy. What did they do in their meetings with God? Think about when later, more permanent structure, the temple is dedicated in 2 Chronicles 7. Watch this. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. The glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down, the glory of the Lord of the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's what you do in the presence of God. You bow down with your face to the ground on the pavement and you worship and you give thanks when you're in the presence of God. We know Isaiah 6, Isaiah falls on his face and worship and woe over his sin in the presence of God's holiness. How about Ezra 10, 1? While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept Bitterly, in the presence of God, people, what do they do? They pray, they make confession, they weep, they cast themselves down before God. 
Why are these pictures so rare in the gatherings of God's people today? Why, why are we not spending so much time here? Why does, this, why does this hardly ever happen when the people of God gather today? Have we forgotten who we're meeting with? We have no less reason to be in awe than our forefathers and mothers in the Old Testament and the faith. We must give ourselves to extraordinary prayer because we have a privilege we cannot forsake. And because we have a family we cannot forget. So Moses pleads for God's presence to go with his people. And look at how God responds in verse 14. God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And what's interesting about this you is that it's singular. It's directed at Moses personally. God says, Moses, my presence will go with you into the promised land and I will give you rest there. This was Moses' chance to leave the rebellious, obstinate people of God behind, to experience the promises and presence of God in his own life. How tempting would that be? Especially when we think about trials that we walk through in the church, when people in the church are hurtful to us or to our families, when people in the church resist the word of God in their lives. Here's your chance to move on without them, Moses. But Moses doesn't take it. He stays in the tent. Verse 15, and notice the emphasis on the people of God. He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses doesn't just want God's presence with him, he wants God's presence with them, with him and the people. He knows it's not about what he wants in his own life. He knows it's about God receiving the glory he deserves, not from a person, but from a people. So let us hear this word from God, especially for leaders in the church. The people we lead need the presence of God, which means they need leaders who will not be content to seek God's blessing in their lives and their families, but who will give themselves to extraordinary prayer for God's blessing on the lives and families of those they lead, to extraordinary prayer for sometimes stubborn, rebellious, and obstinate church to help her become the beautiful bride God has called her to be, even when that comes at great cost to those who lead her. We have a family we cannot forget, which leads to the last reason in Exodus 33 that we need extraordinary prayer for the fullness of God's presence among his people because we have a God we cannot fathom. It's the best part of this chapter. God says in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And that in and of itself is an awesome verse. Let's not gloss over the fact that Moses just got what he had asked for. The very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Moses' prayer moved God's hand. That is awesome. That's reason for extraordinary prayer. When we pray, God acts. 
And no, this doesn't mean we have any low view of the sovereignty of God. Why? Because we believe that God sovereignly ordains ends and means. And God has ordained the prayers of his people to bring about the accomplishment of his purposes in the world. So let's pray like it matters. Like when we pray, God will act. We don't have time to recount all the times in Exodus when God did according to the word of Moses. Brothers and sisters, God will do according to our words. But here in verse 17, God has given Moses what he asked. And one would think, oh, it's been a sufficiently good day in the tent. Now is the time for Moses to make the exit. He's received what he asked for, yet he tarries and asks for one more thing. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Are you serious? You have seen God reveal himself in a burning bush, a sea split in half, not to mention all of these plagues, and water from rocks, bread from heaven, where everybody else had to stay away from the mountain. You got to go up on the mountain. After all the glory you've seen, you have the audacity to say, I want to see your glory. Apparently, the more you taste of the glory of God, the more you want to feast on the glory of God. And in Exodus 34, Moses gets a feast, a glimpse of the glory of God that is recorded for generations to recount. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We need extraordinary prayer because we want God. That's the ultimate reason. This is the one thing, Psalm 27, the one thing we want more than anything, just to gaze upon the beauty of our God. I guess that's the question. Is that the one thing we want? In the words of A.W. Tozer, I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in in vain. May it not be so with us in our day. And Tozer goes on to say, we have but to want him badly enough and he will come and manifest himself to us. How badly do we want him, brothers and sisters? And honestly, more than everything else in this world put together. So God reveals his glory to Moses in Exodus 34. And then what happens after that? The tabernacle is constructed starting in Exodus 35, which then culminates in this closing picture. So now to Exodus 40, the final verses of this book we've been studying these days. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, fire was in it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Yes, 
the presence of God in all of his glory dwelling among his people is where the book of Exodus ends. But these closing chapters of Exodus are part of a much bigger picture. Exodus 25 through 40 actually bookends the first two books of the Bible in a way that bookends the entire Bible. So make the connections for the sake of time. This will be a sweeping overview. I'll put it up here on the screen. Picture with me the glory of God's presence in creation. Picture the dwelling place of God in Eden and all of God's fullness everywhere was holy as Adam and Eve enjoyed God's presence. The same phrase that's used to describe how God walked with Adam and Eve in Eden appears again in Leviticus to describe how God walked with his people through the tabernacle. And creation reflected God's glory. Without exception, everything radiated the glory of God's presence. Of course, we know sin marred all of this and everything changed. All the way to the formation of God's people through God's promises in Genesis and Exodus. But they were still missing his presence. So we see the glory of God's presence in the wilderness where now the dwelling place of God is the tabernacle. The Hebrew word for tabernacle means the dwelling place. And the Holy Spirit inspires language to intentionally tie the tabernacle with Eden. In Genesis 1, seven times we read the words, and God said, seven creative acts after which God rested on the Sabbath. Then from Exodus 25 through 31, seven times we read, the Lord said, Yahweh said, after which the Lord commands his people to keep his Sabbaths. God is saying to us in the very structure of scripture, I am forming a new creation, a new dwelling place among my people. Now, obviously it's different than Eden because man is separated from the holy of holies where the fullness of God's glory dwells in the tabernacle. But even that, remember at the end of Genesis 3, the glory of God's presence is guarded in Eden by cherubim. It's no coincidence that in God's instructions in Exodus for the ark in the tabernacle, the glory of God's presence is surrounded by what? Cherubim. You can only enter the garden from the east. That's the only direction from which you can enter the tabernacle. The point is the tabernacle is more than just a place of worship in the wilderness. It's a microcosm of creation as God designed it, a piece of heaven on earth, a visible symbol of the presence of God, which once dwelled perfectly among his people and a visible promise that he will not leave his people alone, which leads to instructions to the priests. And particularly the high priest, the one person who would ever see the innermost place in the tabernacle where Aaron would enter God's presence to serve as mediator. He would wear the name of the Lord on his forehead as he stepped with trepidation into the glory of God's presence. Everybody else must look from outside, which was awesome enough as we just read at the end of Exodus 40. God's Shekinah glory falling upon this dwelling place with resplendent beauty. And from this point, Israel followed God's glory through the wilderness. And as they wandered, if they ever wondered if God was still with them, they would look over and see that indeed his presence had not left them. They were not alone. God was with them and God was leading them. Just imagine the wonder of watching a cloud over the tabernacle by day, fire inside of it by night. And when it rose, you rose. When it rested, you rested. What an amazing journey. But it was just a shadow and brothers and sisters, we have the substance. 
So I know we're about to jump over a lot of redemptive history, namely the temple. But as this conference of the Gospel Coalition concludes, I want to invite you to see with me how the glory of God's presence in the wilderness points to the glory of God's presence in the Gospel. For when we turn the pages into the New Covenant, John announces the most stunning news in all the world. The dwelling place of God is in Jesus. John 1:14. the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means tabernacled. John says, we have seen his glory in a man, in a man. I think about a Uber ride I was on with a Muslim man, super early in the morning, wasn't in the mood to, I wasn't in the mood to talk, he was. And he asked me from the very beginning, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. He said, I don't believe this. And he turns around and he starts telling me about uh, a dream he had. So this uh, Muslim man from a very unreached part of the world, now living in Metro DC, tells him about a dream he had. Now, you know, Muslims don't believe Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is just a man. Jesus didn't die on the cross. Um, so that's what he's believed all his life. He says, I had a dream and there was this baby and I, I locked eyes, eyes with the baby. The baby looked at me and spoke to me in the most intelligible language and said, do not underestimate what God can do. And he said, do you know what this dream means? And I'm like, well, my middle name is Joseph. So, uh, no, I said, I don't usually like interpret dreams, but I, I've got this one, man. I know exactly what this means. And I began to tell him about how much God loves him, that he's, God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And he is listening to this. Tears are streaming down his eyes. He's like, I'm sorry. I'm like, man, if you just keep your eyes on the road, no apology necessary. And he starts asking questions like faith is rising in him. I'm starting to think, we got, we got to, I mean, this is like an Ethiopian chariot. We got to find a place to baptize this guy. But anyway, that's a whole area of disagreement between us in this room. But anyway, uh, so we, by the time we get to the airport, about an hour later, we get to the airport. And I said, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to save you from your sin? He said, I believe this. With tears, he puts his faith in Christ. This is the most glorious truth in the world. God has come to us in the flesh, the glory that resided above the ark in the Holy of Holies, the glory that only the high priest had access to once a year was walking around the streets of Jerusalem for everybody to see. Jesus embodied God's presence and John doesn't stop there, we know. It's not just the tabernacle, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is not just the light on the golden lampstand, he's the light of the world. He's not just the bread on the table, he's the bread of life. He's not just the blood on a mercy seat offered annually for the people of Jesus of Israel. Jesus sheds his blood to purchase mercy for God, for mercy from God for every nation, tribe, and tongue. And as he tabernacles on the earth, the disciples beheld God's glory. But then he died, devastating them. Then he rose, revolutionizing them. Then he left, confusing them. Where did we go? What do we do? And what do they do? What do they do? Acts 1.14, they devoted themselves to strategizing, creating programs, Organizing conferences and whiteboarding plans? No, they devoted themselves to prayer. The plan was clear. Make disciples of all the nations, witness to the ends of the earth. They knew they could never do that without the fullness of God's presence with them. So they devoted themselves to prayer until Pentecost, the 50th, the feast celebrating the giving of the law in Exodus 19, which JD led us to see when God descended on Mount Sinai like 
fire and gave his law, which eventually led to rebellion against that law, what we saw in Exodus 32, how many people died under the judgment of God? 3,000. Now, Acts 2, it's not fire on a mountain where the people have to stay away. It's tongues of fire resting on every one of God's people. And now, instead of three people dying, 3,000 people dying under the judgment of God, the gospel is proclaimed. How many people just so happen to be saved by the grace of God? 3,000. Drop the mic. The church of Christ is born. See it. Now, the glory of God's presence is in the church. It's a really good thing that Jesus left the earth because now it's not the fullness of God's presence on one person. It's the fullness of God's presence on all his people. And brothers and sisters, this is where we come into the story. The dwelling place of God is us. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit, the glory of God's presence lives in you. Your church is the dwelling place of God and you personally, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Are you serious? The glory of Yahweh dwells in my body? Oh, brothers and sisters, let us never be casual with sin. Let us be holy because Yahweh is holy. Brothers and sisters, we possess his presence, which means no matter what the wilderness of this world brings us, we are never, ever, ever alone. And not just us. Other brothers and sisters in Christ are temples of the living God. So let us have nothing to do with division, slander, or gossip in the church. Let us treat temples of the Holy Spirit with honor and humility and gentleness and patience and care, bearing each other's burdens as the body of Christ himself, through which, follow this, through which the nations observe God's glory. Don't miss this. Oh, please don't miss this because we're missing this in the church today. When the people of God in the Old Testament would transport the tabernacle, it was a picture to the surrounding nations of the glory of God's presence among his people. And now with our bodies as his dwelling place, we transport his glory wherever we go. The wonder of the gospel, God's glory can now be seen in temples everywhere. God's holy presence is not restricted to a building in one part of the world. It's not even embodied only in his son who's no longer on earth. It is demonstrated, it is manifested in every corner of the earth where God's people go. So let's go to every corner of the earth. Brothers and sisters, there are three billion people in the world at this moment with no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No access. They don't have a Christian. They don't have a church near them where the glory of Christ is dwelling among them. We cannot be content to turn a blind eye and deaf ear to three billion people who have not seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if we don't go to them, then three billion people will continue to be born and live and die and go to an eternal hell, separated from the glory of God's presence forever and ever and ever. Unless churches filled with God's spirit get serious about getting God's gospel to the ends of the earth. Let us spread the glory of God's presence among all the nations until the end comes, until we see the glory of God's presence in the new creation where the dwelling place of God will be heaven. Language in Revelation, exactly what we've seen in Genesis and Exodus. Revelation 21, behold the what? dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. No temple in that place because the place is the temple. No need for a holy of holies. The place is the holy of holies. No need for a lamp, Revelation 22, 
5, for the Lord our God is our light. You remember the high priest walking in the presence of God with the name of God on his forehead and the new creation, Revelation 22, verse 4, his name will be on his, our foreheads and we will what? We will see his face. And we will delight in his presence. This pilgrim journey will be over. One day we will finally be home and there will be no more sin and no more sorrow and no more suffering. There will be no more hard days and no more sleepless nights, no more heartaches, no more brokenness, no more loneliness, no more emptiness, no more discouragement, no more depression, no more cancer, no more disease, and no more death. In the presence of God, he will personally wipe every tear from our eyes and all the earth will be filled with God's glory as all the nations sing of his grace. Brothers and sisters, if we long for his presence in that day, let us pursue his presence in this day. Let's give ourselves to extraordinary prayer for the fullness of God's presence among us, knowing, knowing that no matter what the wilderness of this world may bring our way, our God is with us and he will be with us all the way to the end. And enjoyment of his presence will never, ever end. Will you pray with me? Oh God, my biggest concern in this message that I've just preached is that I've obviously preached far longer than I am now praying. So I would just ask that you might use your word that we've just seen to lead us to extraordinary prayer in our lives, in our churches. For we long to experience the fullness of your presence among your people. God, we need you, and God, we want you more than anything, everything in this world put together. We praise you, we praise you for the reality we're about to see, that your spirit, spirit of Jesus lives in us. All glory be to your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.